So, good evening. Yes, Christ alone, our cornerstone. My name is Linda Heesh, and I am from Littleton, Colorado. And it is my pleasure tonight to be your speaker. Um, yay, 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 yay. <laughs> and when Martha uh, asked me to speak, um, she let me know that you are my God with the Isaiah passage 45.5 was really the focal point along with the song that we just sang um, for the direction and the theme to pray about what God would have me share tonight. And so I, I have to say that I'm coming tonight doing some of the things in the, um, in the workshop we had today that speakers are never supposed to do at a CFO camp. <laughs> like, you're never supposed to give a whole lot of information about scriptures and, the, you know, what it means and a lot of, like, what a preacher would do. Uh, oh, well. Um, you're, you, you are not supposed to have YouTube Oh, well. (laughs) Um, But aside from all of that, I just had to chuckle at God's sense of humor because he's wired me the way I am. And we may not even get to all of that tonight, but as I was preparing for this, I said a pretty quick yes to Martha as soon as I heard the topic because God has been working in this area in my life for many, many, many years to mold me in this athletes of the spirit walk that we're on to really deep, deep in my heart and my spirit and my brain to know that I know that I know that the great I am, Jehovah, Yahweh, is my Lord. You are my God. And I am here tonight to testify to that and proclaim that God is the great I am in all the good things that happen in our lives and through all those circumstances that are life's challenges as well. And I learned that partly through the birth of my daughter, followed 32 years later with the birth of my grandson. So when my daughter was born... Um, I had what I thought at the time was an incredibly long, painful delivery, 22 hours. Now, to me, okay, God, I mean, really, 22 hours of of this process, and it was very, very difficult and damaging to me physically and really hard on my daughter. And so when she was born, after all of that, The only thing that I thought about is we're both alive. This is a miracle that I'm alive as the mom and that my daughter is alive. And so I had no time to ponder the greatness of God. I had no time or energy. I was just, I was worn out. In fact, we were in the hospital for the next about a week. It was really a a difficult time in my life physically. But God is so good, isn't he? Fast forward 32 years. My daughter now is a mother of one. And she had a long labor. I thought 22 was long. But with my first grandchild, Emily, Ashley's labor was 30 hours. But they were both fine. So they went home from the hospital. But, I mean, 30 hours. So now we're preparing for the delivery of baby number two, a boy. And I get a phone call from my son-in-law, not my daughter. My son-in-law is calling and saying, you know, Mom, we really want you to be in there in the delivery room. Because he knew what it was like to be there for 30 hours. (laughs) Yeah, he (laughs) he needed a break. And I just thought that was so precious. And so when your son-in-law asks his mother-in-law to do something, what do you say? Yes! (laughs) Of course I will be there. 
And so we're, we're there and we're together and this labor uh, went much better, still diff- difficult, but went much better, much shorter. But I will have to tell you, I don't know if we're taping this or not, but at one point my son-in-law went down. I mean, here we are, I'm on this side and my son-in-law's on this side. And I go, Corey, you're looking a little white. <laughs> And so, just picture this. My daughter is in labor, and I'm looking over her. Corey, you okay down there? (laughs) So he was. We got him some juice. I think he just locked his knees in the moment, hadn't eaten as much as he should. We got his blood sugars up, and he was fine. But I had to chuckle, God, you are so good. (laughs) Here I am, you know, with him, and so that Ashley wasn't too freaked out that her husband just passed out. Um, But the point of all of this sharing is that when my grandson Dean was born, I was overcome with the reverential awe of our God. I just looked at this baby, and I had had no time to relish God's goodness, his greatness, his sovereignty, when my own child was born. But as a grandma, this birth testified to the living God to take two people, create another individual, birth through this process, and to see this baby. And I remember thinking to myself, how can anyone who sees the birth ever not believe in God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost? And there's a whole lot more behind that that I will come back to. But what a gift God gave me. What a gift to be blessed, to hold my grandson, and to be there to actually see his birth and testify and proclaim, "Ah, you are my God, and you are amazing. You are my God, our theme. Isaiah 45, 5. I am the great I am. I am the Lord. And there is no other, no other God. And so let's go back and set the stage. Here we go. Preacher time, teacher time coming out for just a few minutes. Bear with me. You know, and let's look at Isaiah for just a second, because I think it helps set the context for what we are really proclaiming here this weekend in particular. And that is, Isaiah was one of the four Old Testament major prophets. Major not in his words carry more weight in scripture, but length, the length of the book. And it's important for me what has helped me to understand and to deeply embed you are my God, is to know that Isaiah, when the Holy Spirit inspired him to write this, when he was foretelling and foretelling, this was called the dark ages of the Israelites, of the Jewish nation, of God's chosen. And it was the dark ages because we had the northern and the southern kingdom divided. There was tremendous turmoil, and the northern kingdom had been um, defeated and overtaken by the Assyrians. And so God's people were in danger from within, rottenness, moral corruption, personal corruption, political corruption. Does that sound familiar to any of you? And they were also in danger from without, from the Gentile nations surrounding them. Does that sound familiar to any of you in 2016? Mm. Danger from within and danger from without. Isaiah's not writing to a time when everything is lollipops and hunky-dory. You know, boy, that dates me, right? (laughs) Everything is wonderful and coming up roses. He is writing to a people that you and I right now in 2016 can relate to. That those words in Isaiah, if you've not read Isaiah recently, read it. Read it through the eyes of a struggling nation then and a struggling God's chosen today. And what does Isaiah say to them? Of course, he was forthtelling and foretelling. 
But he was prompting Judah to know that judgment was coming if they did not turn from their idols and turn to the living God and proclaim, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Yes, there are dangers, but I'm pointing you this direction. I'm warning you, stay true. I am has spoken. He was also encouraging them to, that God would restore their kingdom, that God would restore their kingdom. And even more so, what I find so interesting about Isaiah is um, his name alone means Yahweh is salvation, or saying that another way, salvation is of the Lord. Because in Isaiah, apart from the Psalms in the Old Testament, Isaiah is one of those books that is more hope-oriented towards the coming Messiah than any other book in the Old Testament besides the Psalms. Yes. Powerful stuff for us to read now in this century, in this decade, with what God was speaking to Isaiah way back when. Very powerful. Isaiah comforted his people then and us now with the knowledge of God's love, And I just picked out a few things that I saw as I was skimming back over Isaiah. His love, his longing to forgive, his redemptive nature, his hope for the future of the coming Messiah, of the Savior. And we now know that that's our cornerstone, Jesus Christ. And what's interesting, as you look at this slide, oh, and I... I zipped through a lot of those. If you noticed on here, I had my grandson up here. Um, Yeah, to kind of see that. But notice in here, I am the Lord and there is no other. In Isaiah 45 alone, there are four times that you see God inspiring Isaiah to repeat this exact same phrase. Now, that's significant for us as uh, contemporary readers of Scripture because in the Hebrew, there was no punctuation. So there was no punctuation, exclamation mark. There were no emojis, you know, that we use in our text. None of those emojis. Um, You know, there were no Brian Hollins standing up here and just making sure that we got the point. But one of the tools that, one of the point, one of the tools that um, you see in Hebrew writing is repetition. When you see a phrase or a word repeated like that over and over and over again, especially in in this section of passage, a smaller section, pay attention. This is to be emphasized. It's important. And it's been important in my life. And my hope is that when you leave today and as you hear this song and as you uh, read the scriptures and as you think of our thing, theme that it will go deeper into your heart and spirit when you proclaim you are my God I am the great Lord and Savior of all I am the Lord of the past and the present and the future that is saying I am the great I am I am the self-existent one I am infinite I am sufficient I am eternal. It says to you in those few words, I am the creator of everything and sovereign over everything, totally in control. When you say, you are my God, you are proclaiming this among many other attributes of God. But when the great I am There's much that comes in just those two. Mm. I am. You are my I am. Yes. Yes. So let's go back to Dean's birth. When I was in there in reverential awe of this birth, all of this was part of that worship and awe that I was extending to the Lord by holding this little baby. Oh, yes. Deep 
understanding, deep worship and praise and acknowledgement that you are my great I am. And this little baby boy testifies to that in a very tangible way. Amen? Amen. I'm going to move forward now to some personal examples. And so we'll fast forward through a few slides here now that talk about the cornerstone. And if you're curious about that, we can talk about that later sometime if you want to see those. But my goal tonight is to really demonstrate to you through some of my own personal experiences how God has taught me over a period of many, many decades still learning, but decades, of proclaiming the great I am, particularly in the middle of life's challenges. So I'd like to take the last part of my talk to focus on that, because I think all of us more easily can proclaim I am, you are my great I am, when you're holding a little baby, when life is good and things are really positive. But I think the challenge comes sometimes for us when things are not going that well when things are challenging, and it's hard to see God in the midst of those challenges. So among the many hats that I'm wearing right now, I am retired, um, but retired from my job in the secular world as an educator, and on to life's second half, uh, where I've become a missionary. been in Africa with three appointments, uh, three, three different times, And the other thing that I have done that God has really impressed me to do is at 65, last May, I graduated with my master's degree in chaplaincy from Denver Seminary. So, yeah, just just think about that for a moment. (laughs) Something that God really purposed and ordained uh, in my life. But I have now been working for two and a half years as a chaplain, part-time. I'm not interested anymore in this whole eight-to-five business thing. Um, But I work primarily at night, um, and I work uh, one weekend a month, and it's very part-time, and that's just the way I want it to be. But as, as a chaplain, I enter into people's lives when they're in a crisis situation. You know, I don't get a call at 3 o'clock in the morning to come to the hospital um, just to have a casual cup of coffee with somebody. No. I come at 3 o'clock in the morning when a couple, a young couple, uh, has miscarried, has delivered their baby at 23 weeks and screams out, why is this happening to me? I go to the hospital at 2 o'clock in the morning because there's an older gentleman there that is, uh, his wife is dying, and he just doesn't want to be alone. Those are the kinds of calls that I get. And it's a pluralistic, well, let me give you another one. Just last week, uh, there was a family who was in the hospital that asked to see me, and their son was nine years old, active, vibrant little boy that just started to feel bad. And he was diagnosed that morning with leukemia. And the prognosis was 50 to 60% survival. And here are these parents reeling with trying to process this information. And they called. And I went. And I listened. And we'll be talking about this in just a minute. It's a pluralistic setting. I never know who I'm going to see ethnically, race, sexual orientation, LGBT, and all the other initials. You just, you know, you're walking into an environment where you have absolutely no idea. And so one of the things that we as chaplains at Denver Seminary, anyway, learn is to pray for discernment about the faith perspectives of the people that we're going to visit. And you need to, through the power of the Spirit, to discern this fairly quickly because you're walking into a room cold, you know what I mean, not knowing anything about the family, and yet um, you are there to be a representative of God into the lives of those people, no matter where they are, in their belief or non-belief. 
you kind of get the picture? Yeah. And so it's important for you to be praying for the Lord's discernment on what type of faith or lack of it is evident here. And so this diagram helps us and helps me to put into a practical format what God has been teaching me since I was in my 30s, just didn't have the words to go along with it. And this is for at least one person in here. It's important for you to see this tonight. Don't know who, don't know why, but for you to process it. So there we are, us down here. And we have life events that we respond to. What is our faith perspective in that? One of the types of faith is an open faith. And an open faith has, is flexible. It has a healthy room for growth. And an open faith has room in their belief and value systems and their understanding of who God is for the bad stuff in life. So, yeah, it's hard. They recognize the difficulties, those life events, particularly in chaplaincy, that are in such a crisis. But there's a trust in God, if you look at A, the trust in God that even though these life events are happening, it is filtered through the eyes of the Lord and through the truth of who God is, even in the midst of some of these horrific circumstances. And that's called an open faith. Secondly, a closed faith. A closed faith is a very rigid, legalistic faith. And this is someone that believes in God, but it's an either-or approach to life. Either when life is good, I'm doing everything I need to be doing in order for God to bless my life. And if these life events are in crisis, it's a result of sin. I must not be doing what I should be doing because my baby wouldn't have died at 23 weeks, right? If I'd been praying as much as I should have been praying, if I'd been going to church as much as I should have been going to church, if I had been, do you see where the focus is? They still have a belief in God. They still have a belief in God, but their actions impact God, not God through which. And then um, circumstantial faith is a person who their theology, their understanding of God is based on circumstances. And most non-believers will usually exhibit this. Uh, but many, um, many believers, and you'll see me included in that, come at life that way, of life's events. So this is the person that screams out why, that says, oh, you tell me that God is good, but a good God would never have allowed my nine-year-old boy, son, to get leukemia. So God can't be good. See, life circumstances impact who you think God is. So let's go back a slide to the diagram again for a second. This works too. So here you are. Life events happen. How are you going to view those life events? An open faith would be an A path where you view those events realistically, but you're praying and trusting, even though your eyes don't see the actions out here, but you're trusting in the Lord, even in the midst of life's challenges. You can declare, you are the great I am. And this stings down here what's happening, but I know that you are the great I am. And I choose to believe in faith in who you are, regardless of these circumstances. And you're still in control, right? You're still sovereign. You're still the self-existent one. You're still righteous. You're still all love and all goodness, no matter what I'm seeing down here. That's an open faith. A closed faith, we already talked about. A circumstantial faith is, you know, they're going to get angry at God. You're doing fine. I'm flipping back and forth. Yeah, I think I've given enough that you have an idea, right? Because we can come back to this. So I want to give you some personal examples of uh, how this plays out in real life. And now we're on to the colicky baby triangle. 
Okay, so here I am, this precious daughter. It's amazing that she ever lived and that I ever lived. That is the miracle that we both lived. I mean, literally a miracle that we both lived through that process of delivery. And so this precious baby, and I'm holding her, and I'm loving her, and she's got colic. No, no. So I learned everything you could possibly, and I know that they don't even call it colic anymore. They call it something else. I can't remember. But anyway, so most of you know colicky. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so here's this colicky baby. So I learned the football hold, you know, upside down and pat the back. I learned try to put her on the the top of a a dryer, you know, to see if the vibration would help. I mean, we were filling her full of this pink liquidy stuff that I can't even remember the doctor would prescribe. I mean, I was ready to buy it in the gallon. Yeah. Amoxicillin? No, Mila, Mila something... Mylocan, yes, something like that. Yeah, I mean, every trick, every wife's tale, everything the doctor said, I mean, I tried it all. And the only thing that usually worked is if I would put her in her car seat and we would drive. I mean, and I would drive till I was out of gas sometimes because I was so, I mean, I found the neighborhood. I learned more about the neighborhood and the sites as long as I didn't stop the car. Then I have, I mean, since then, drive, 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 drive. And that usually worked. But one night, one fateful night, I tried all the things that I had tried that had worked. Nothing worked. And I'd been with this colicky baby. And this was on to about month six. This didn't stop at month four like the doctors said it was supposed to stop. Yeah, so I'm there. I'm there into six months, six, with this baby, tried everything. She'd been crying all day except for the short nap because she didn't sleep very long because she hurt so much, right? Eight o'clock at night, she's still crying, and I'm in her nursery, and I'm rocking her, and I'm rocking her, and she's screaming, and she's screaming, and she's crying, and pretty soon I'm crying. I have no idea what to do, and this baby is going on and on and on. And I'm holding her, but I finally, and I'm praying through all of this. I finally, inside, because I couldn't move my hands away, inside I was doing this. God, you stop this baby from crying, and you, God, do it right now, period. (laughs) That was my prayer. Finally. Well, he is your God. He is my God. I knew he was my God. I'd learned that. So guess what happened? Anybody venture a guess? No. She didn't stop crying. She screamed even louder. And there I am. And finally, finally, I think we were both just so exhausted you know, just let me picture this. I'm crying. We're rocking, crying, crying, crying. We were both finally so exhausted that she quit crying. And I'm finally there. I don't want to even move because I don't want her to start crying again. So I'm just holding her there. And in the quietness of that moment, you are my God, spoke into my heart and said, Linda, you are praying amiss. You were praying that I would change Ashley. What you should have been praying. How do you change me, Lord? He said, you should have been praying that I would make you into the mother that your daughter needs. That I would strengthen you during this time of her growing up in this babyhood part of this that I would strengthen you to persevere in your faith and in your motherhood of this gift that I have given you. Lord, you're right. You are absolutely right. I was selfish. I was praying that you would change my daughter. You do what I want you to do, God. When I want you to do it, God, I, 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 I. Did you hear it? Instead of, yeah. So God, in his patient love 
all of us then said, now, Linda, let me teach you how to pray for your daughter. This is how you pray for her. Peace I give you, Ashley. My peace I give, not as the world gives peace, do I give unto you. Do not let your heart be troubled, Ashley, six months old. And, you know, I didn't know when I'm holding that six-month-old that that was exactly what she would need up into her life today. That she would need me, the mom, praying for peace when she was not too sure of herself in elementary school and getting real injured by comments of kids. I didn't know that she would need me as her mom to be praying when she was in the cafeteria at Columbine High School, one step away from turning the corner at the same time that Eric Klebold shot that teacher. She was one step and one turn away from coming face-to-face with that gun that day in the cafeteria. I didn't know that when I'm holding my six-month-old. I didn't know that I needed to pray for her peace during the the divorce, on and on and on and on, to this very day. See, I was on B here at first with a colicky daughter. Circumstances were driving my view of God and what I thought he should do when I thought he should do it. Instead of, you're my God. Teach me. Teach me, Lord, about being the parent that this little girl, this gift from you, needs. That's how relevant this is. All of us in this room float through this. Let's go on to the next one. I'm going to quickly go through this one because there's one more that's not on here that I want to share just as I was listening tonight before I spoke. There's, um, we're changing things up. And that is CFO, listening to the spirit. Yeah. <laughs> oh, too funny. Um, I was diagnosed with melanoma cancer again in my 30s. You're getting the learning experience here that I had early on in trying to figure out Really, what this really meant when I said, when I say, you are my God. So at 30, I was diagnosed with melanoma cancer. And my first reaction was a B, circumstantial reaction. Why? God, don't you know I'm 30 years old? 30-year-olds aren't supposed to get cancer. I mean, what are you going to do about this? This is ridiculous. This can't be right. You know, argue, argue. Why, God? Why? Why, 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 why? Where was the focus? On me, on the circumstances, on what I was seeing right in front of me. But God, in his grace and mercy, after I finished my little tantrum at 30 years old, graciously again shifted my focus I am your God. I am your God. Trust in me. Trust in me. And go to the elders in your church and ask them to pray for you. And I went out of obedience because I was done throwing my tantrum. And they prayed for me. And God supernaturally healed me of cancer. And I know that because I went ahead and had the surgery. And the doctor was, was preparing me in advance for where they expected to see the melanoma based on the biopsy. And when the doctor came back after they did the, the biopsy of that tissue and said, I can't medically explain this. He said, but because I know you had cancer. And now you don't. Amen. And now you don't. All the glory to God. And I've pondered that over the years. Lord, is there some other reason that I need to be in touch with, with why? I mean, 
I didn't really want the why question, but how are you going to use this in my life? What, what is the purpose? Will I ever know that in this lifetime? Because sometimes we don't, and sometimes we do. So I found myself in Africa, in Uganda, as a missionary. And I had the opportunity to go to Malago Hospital there, and that's a state-run hospital. And picture a room much, much larger than this, with bed after bed after bed, with maybe as much room as from Wayne here to Anita between each bed. Um, they were given one meal a day of some porridge and, um, and a little bit of water, and then that was it. Um, there was no other food unless your family or others came to support you. And most of the people uh, that were really sick that came to Malago, um, the, the healing rate was very low because for them to finally get to Malago Hospital, they were in the last phase of, of their ability to live or survive. And so who of all the people that were in that hospital does God have me go and visit? but a young woman in her 30s that was sent by her family to Malago Hospital to die. She was diagnosed with cancer. And so here is a white woman from Eaton, Colorado, little tiny farming community, ministering hope to a woman who had given up all hope and sharing with her, I'm a cancer survivor. And may I, t- may I touch you here? Yeah. And she was like, I just want to hold on to you. Just let me touch you. Mm-hmm. You survived cancer? Yes, I did. 30-some years ago, I did. Just let me hold on to you. There's hope. And it's not hope. It's not hope in the healing. That's up to the Lord. But it's the hope that she could carry in the living God that he loved her and he sent a woman to Uganda to a hospital to give her hope where there is no hope. To testify, to proclaim, I am, you are my God. And you, because she was a follower of Jesus, you are in his hands. And he sees this. And he knows you. And he is your great I am. And after I visited her, God said, got it? I am a redemptive God. I didn't cause that disease. I didn't cause that cancer. But you were healed by the miraculous, supernatural power of the living God. And I sent you. To her. You are my God. Those words don't just come off of my lips without a depth of what that meaning is. And that's my prayer for you. No matter where you are, no matter how long you've been a Christian, that you cannot leave this CFO annual without the depth of what That means when you declare and proclaim, not just in the good times, but in life's challenges, you are my God. You are my great I am. And there's a whole flood of spiritual truth and emotion and intellectual capabilities and understandings that lie under and beyond and through those words. And that you can never say them again without that depth of meaning being more powerful in your life after you leave this camp, this CFO annual, this week. I have a couple, one more story and then conclusion. I know I'm going over. Are you okay with that? A little bit longer? You see, when... When I was 55 and I retired from my teaching job and I began to explore, I knew the passion. I knew I was to proceed and to follow the call of God's of ministry, of 
anywhere that God would send me to proclaim him, to teach and encourage others to follow a deeper faith walk in Jesus. And that's to the atheist that I meet, as well as the really mature believer. Wherever people were in their walk, I was to come alongside and be God's instrument to point them towards the living God. And so I knew that, but I didn't know anything else at that point about what that would really entail. So one of the first things that I did as God led and directed through a variety of circumstances is I found myself at World Venture, walked into the headquarters, didn't know if I was going to stuff envelopes or what that meant, but it soon became very clear to me that God was directing me to become a missionary. So I went through the process and became endorsed as a missionary. And in that process, back to this diagram, in that process of obedience to the Lord, one day during my quiet time, the Lord said to me, Will you go wherever I send you? Will you go wherever I send you? Well, yes, Lord, I'll go. I'll go where you send me. He said, okay, will you go wherever I send you, even if it means you will die? You see, I had a choice then. What, where was my faith? Life events, God's given me a heads up. This might mean I'm going to die. Now, anybody that goes to Africa, you kind of go knowing that's a possibility. But to have the living God speak into your heart and say, will you go even if it means you're going to die? But I'd gone past the tantrum stage. Why, Lord? Why? Why would you send me to Africa just to die? I mean, what good? How can I glorify you if I'm dead? You know? I mean, really? I was past that. Didn't even cross my mind. I went right to the living God and said, Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. I will go, even if it means that I will die. And so um, significant and so real was this that I put all of my affairs in order. Um, Talked to my brother about my, and I'm like 55 years old at this point, 56. Put all my affairs in order, let my brother know where I wanted to be buried, what to do, how to go get the body, all of that. Put that all in preparation. That's how serious this was. Now some people say, you were so brave. It has absolutely nothing to do with bravery. I was not brave. Not then, not now. But it has a whole lot to do with a lifetime of learning and learning and relearning and getting it wrong until you see me now in front of you as 66-year-old lady who then went to Africa. And one of those ladies I met in Africa was this Ugandan cancer patient at the hospital. And I'm here in front of you, and so God didn't call me there to end my life. But where are you? And so if you could fast forward to some questions. I've learned some questions that help me respond to these life circumstances. I have found that why is an honest, real first response that we still and I still make? We try to get meaning out of those things in life that happen to us. And it's okay to be honest about that. I think we do ourselves a disservice within the Christian community when we don't recognize that we can have real human emotions of grief and pain and loss and injury and hurt and be honest about those 
and at the same time have an unshakable trust in the living God, in the great I am. I think sometimes we think when, when we're with each other, if we, if we don't just testify to the Lord, that we're somehow not viewed as Christian enough. I don't know. It's, it's weird in Christian circles. Um, Charlie and I were just talking a little bit. I hope you don't mind here. I should have asked permission, which you should do as a speaker. <gasps> First, before you talk about something. But um, I was talking to Charlie about some of these life events and in the pains and the struggles of uh, death and dying, um, my parents are both deceased within the last few years. And as many of you know, um, Charlie's faced this in his own life with his own family members. And one of the things we were just shaking our heads out are those Christians that say, but all things work to the good to them who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Now, that is truth. But when you're in the midst yes. of this pain here... Yes, and you need to release that pain and emotion. And a fellow Christian, brother or sister, in all honesty, trying to help you and encourage you, no, you're not, you know, just why are you crying? Why are you upset? Why are you grieving? Why are you asking the question why? Right, because don't you know that all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose? There's a time for that scripture. But as a chaplain, if I walked into the room, every room I went into, with that being my first response, how open do you think that the parents of that nine-year-old would have been to share the pain in their heart that I might touch them with the compassion of Christ if I started with that verse? Exactly. Now, there's a time for that. In an open faith, but not in the midst of that pain. So I've learned, I was sharing with Charlie, instead of saying, how are you? Because I've gotten that a lot. My dad died last August. How are you? What, what, how do you think I am? Both of my, many of you see me pretty weepy today. This is the first, oh, here we go. Yeah, first, yeah, without them. When they were, those of you that know them, were, were CFO. I mean, CFOI, foundational members of CFO for many, many, many years. Yeah. Well, how do you think I am? Yeah. No. What's more helpful is to say, Lynette, where are you today? Are you up here? Are you down here? If you have to ask a question, that's one that might help. What I mostly needed were people to just encourage me to be who I am and to talk when I wanted to talk and to just hold me up in prayer. Yeah. Hold me up in prayer. So I've learned that instead of these why questions, be honest that sometimes we ask those. I still ask them. Why, God, would you let this, this little baby die? But I catch myself now very quickly, and I turn those why questions into what questions. And that has really been a help for me to look at uh, the great I am and to filter this experience I'm going through through Jesus' eyes, through the cornerstone of my faith, through the Holy Spirit's empowerment, through the Father. So I ask questions like, what am I learning about you, Lord, in the midst of all of this? What am I learning about myself? And what do I need to do differently? Those are questions that speak to how God is teaching me more about who he is as the great I am in my life. Does that make sense? It's questions like that. Um, And even as a chaplain... If I see that I've gotten too connected to a crisis that I've experienced, these are not the questions I ask them. (laughs) But these are questions that, when I need to, I ponder, Lord, what am I learning about you by being a chaplain into the lives of these people? You know, what am I learning about myself 
I recently, over these last two and a half years, I, I had to learn that there is some pain that I absolutely cannot touch. It is so deep and so profound, and I have to really trust in the Lord's discernment to what to say or not to say anything at all. At all. And trust that the Lord at the right time will bring people into that family's life that at the right time that they can hear the words and to let go of that. To let go of that. And what, if anything, do I need to do differently? Those are the kinds of questions that have helped me. So in conclusion... I once wrote in my journal kind of a letter to God where I was listening to God. In the stillness and in the chaos, know that I am God. Mm -hmm. I am the Lord, and there is no other. As you leave tonight, may those words carry a deeper meaning for each of you. To proclaim who he is, in the times of difficulty and suffering in your life, as well as the times that are good. Proclaim when you say, you are my God, that he is all righteousness, that he is sovereign, that he is good and loving and merciful, and that we have the coming Savior, who is our Savior now, but we can look forward with hope I grieve now for the loss of my parents, not languishing without hope, but I grieve with hope. And as Christians, we should understand that. We can grieve and mourn and loss at your own pace, the way you would do it, but you grieve with hope. And Isaiah points then and now to that hope we have in the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, our cornerstone, that all that is wrong in this world, he will someday make right. Amen. 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 Amen.